How many of you uh, went and stood in lines on Black Friday? Raise your hand. None of you? None of you. <laughs> Good church. That's great. Okay. Uh, well, this is, this is this one. I'm sure we'll get a few responses. How many of you uh, sat uh, maybe on the edge of your couch or maybe actually in Wrigley Field when the Cubs uh, brought in the World Series? Well, I guess you wouldn't have been in Wrigley Field, would you? You would have been. Where, where were they again? That shows you how much I love sports. Uh, how many of you did that? How many of you sat and watched that? Okay. How many of you, uh, perhaps, this uh, Thanksgiving season, sort of waited in anticipation for something in the oven to be done cooking and making sure that it was taken out just at the right time, maybe watching that time, or maybe checking out every so often, throw up your hand, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Advent's all about. Advent is a season of waiting, right? And we all can identify with this time of waiting, whether that's waiting for the Cubs to win the World Series for, oh, well, over 100 years. Uh, or, or maybe that is uh, simply waiting for food to come out of the oven. Or maybe that's waiting for the doors to open so you can get that doorbuster thing that you couldn't afford otherwise. Or maybe you just like the excitement of waiting in the line. That's what Advent's about. Right? It's, it's stopping and waiting for this moment to see something or to have something or to experience something. But that moment right before the moment is quite interesting, isn't it? That moment right before the moment of the thing you're waiting for, the feeling in your stomach, the anxiousness in your spirit, the racing of the heart. I don't like sports, but for some reason I really enjoyed watching the last few moments and the last extra inning of the Cubs game. For some reason I, I was brought into this moment and I was excited. I don't really know why. If anyone can explain, let me know. Uh, but I was. This is what Advent's about. It's this, it's this season of waiting, of expectation. And in our text today, that was registered moments ago, in Isaiah chapter 40, this is exactly where the Israelite people find them. They, they find themselves in that moment before the moment. Waiting for something new. Waiting for the doors to open. Waiting for them to say, we win. Waiting for something to be done and to enjoy it. They're waiting for something. You see, the Israelite people found themselves in a place where they had the land that God had promised to them. They had the descendants that God had promised to them. And they had many blessings. They were very prosperous and well off. They had all of that, but then they lost all of it. And they were taken into exile. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. Many in their family were split up or killed. And they found themselves in a place where they would lost their identity. They had lost their sense of security. And they didn't know what to do moving forward except for ask God to still hold true to his promises. And so most of the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures is really this wrestling match of the Israelites trying to figure out, you know, God, you told us you were going to give us land, you were going to give us descendants, and you were going to prosper us. Yet we are seemingly continually losing that and gaining it back. Losing that and gaining it back. And so the scriptures are this constant narrative of them trying to understand why they're losing it. It's really easy to feel like God is faithful and God is good when it's all good, right? But then when, the, when moments when bad happens, what do we have to do? What do we always do? Oh God, why did you let this happen to me? What did I do wrong? The Israelites wrestled with it. 
We still wrestle with it today. The theologians call it retribution theology. Well, if something bad happened to me, that means that God's mad at me and God's trying to punish me and teach me something. We see this often embodied in what's called the prosperity gospel. Uh, any good televangelist will preach this message. It's this idea of the health and wealth gospel, right? You do good things, good things happen to you. You do bad things, bad things happen to you. If you're a bad person, you won't get a lot. If you're a good person, you'll get a lot. I really don't think that that is universally or even just in America could be easily applied, is it? There are people who love God deeply, serve Him faithfully, and they don't have much. I might even present that maybe they love Him in a little bit of a deeper way because she has supplied for them and provided for them and she needs them and they need Him just as much. The tension... Look what it says in our text here in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. It says, Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term and her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. In essence, Israel, you're suffering because you did bad things and we're going to punish you now. Israel's trying to make sense of why they're in this place. Is God truly punishing them? them? And this is a question I've wrestled with a lot. You may not agree with me, but I don't actually think God punishes sin. Grab your seat. You're going to be okay. All right? Let me, let me explain. I don't think God punishes sin. I think sin punishes sin. I think you reap what you sow. I think God has set up the world in such a way that when you do something evil or hurtful to somebody, that will come back to you. Now you're like, well, isn't that what you just said doesn't happen? No, it's not what I said. What I mean by this is, is let me let me make this make this clear to you. What is sin? Let's define it. Sin is, I believe, sin is when you hurt the heart of God by hurting His people and His creation. You hurt the heart of God by hurting His people and His creation. It's the reverse of love God and love your neighbor. It's when you don't love God. And you don't love your neighbor, that hurts God's heart. This is sin. And so when you do that, you reap consequences, right? If I lie, cheat, or steal against you, whether God exists or not, the way that our bodies are made and the way that our hearts are wired, that, that's going to hurt me. That's offensive. And there's a consequence that occurs there, whether that's the changing of the context of our relationship, or that's the loss of something, or the feelings of guilt and shame that you succumb to. Right? This is how this works. Yet, often we do have this struggle of, is God, is God punishing me? I think what's really interesting, if, if we continue on here in this, in this passage down in verse 5, it says, Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed to all people, and they shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see... The Old Testament isn't all full of retribution theology. This idea that if you do bad things, bad things happen to you. If you do good things, good things happen to you. That God's behind all of this, right? Um, and, it, and, it, and if you're a good person, God will bless you and you'll have a lot. And if, if you're not a good person, then God won't give you anything. Uh, and bad things will happen to you. This idea uh, is, is not the only idea in the, in the Old Testament. Think about the book of Job. The book of Job is this picture of him trying to find a new way to try to understand Okay, so what about the guy that seems to do everything right? And yet everything is taken from him. They're, they're trying to make sense of that in the Old Testament. 
And so they draw this picture of, of how they think that God interacts with a man who seems to be the most righteous man, yet he loses everything. And then, but again, it wraps up with this. What, what, how did you know that God was really with him in the end? Well, he gets double everything he had before. What if he never got it all back? Would God still be with him? Absolutely he is. But you see, they're trying to make sense of, of their experience. The same thing we're trying to do today. Jesus uh, comes up against us again. Jesus, in, in John chapter 9, sees a blind man. This blind man, he, he in many ways, I'm sure, feels exiled. Just like the Israelites did. On the outer edges, not welcomed or loved amongst the community. Sitting on the side of the road, blind, begging. And that's his only hope. His only hope every day is to beg and to hope somebody will throw some change at him. He finds himself on the side of the road. And the disciples come to him and they say this. Why is this man blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus says, neither. It's so that the glory of God can be revealed in him. And Jesus heals him. You see, they, the disciples had the same theology the Israelites had and many of us have today. It's this idea, well, if something's wrong with me, if I'm blind, if I'm deaf, if I'm mute, if I'm crippled, if I'm poor... You fill in the blank. Well, that just must mean that God's not with me. That my parents sinned and I'm reaping the consequences of it. Or I sinned and now I'm reaping the consequences of it. But Jesus just puts that whole thing to bed and says, No! That's not it. I'm glorified. I'm glorified either way. I'm seen in both. I'm with both. Your hope isn't in being healthy and wealthy. Your hope is in knowing me. That's really cliche, Josh. It's super cliche. And, and, and if I'm blind, and I'm deaf, and I can't walk, and I, and I feel oppressed, and I feel poor, and I can't pay my bills, or I can't buy my children Christmas gifts, or even just some food for the table, uh, you know, just knowing that God is there, it's not really good enough. They really pay the bills, pal. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's because there's this there's this little word that we there's these three letter words that we often use that really are driving me absolutely insane right now, which is this: God is on the throne. Raise your hand if you've heard that lately. Okay, raise your hand if you want to smack the person who says it to you. <laughs> I do. But I won't because I'm a pacifist. Amen. I got one amen. God is on the throne. Yeah, God is on the throne. Amen, absolutely. But 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 don't leave, don't stop at that. Because God is on the throne, what does that mean for you and I? What does that require of us now? You see, hope is great, but if you don't do anything with the hope, if you don't embody hope, then hope is pointless. God can be on the throne, but if you don't do anything with that reality, then that reality is really quite cliche to us. You want hope? Our world needs hope? Be hope. If we could all be hope for people, you're like, what does that mean to be hope? I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> if we could all be hope for people, hope would have feet. Hope would have a name. Hope would have legs. Hope would have hands. Hope would have a heart. Hope would be seen and not just a concept or a tweet. 
to? How can I be hope? Well, let me just give you some examples. That's not good. I didn't start my timer, so I have no idea how long I've been preaching. <laughs> no, I did start. I just must have bumped it. Twelve minutes in. We're good still. Here we go. So here's how you can be hope. Here's how you can be hope. Just a few examples. Uh, the Sunday after the election is very interesting. I was talking with the person who leads uh, Bridge Project at Wicker Park location. And I said, how was, uh, how was Bridge Project yesterday? She said, never had so many volunteers. She said, we had 35 people come out. We usually have like a handful of people. And I said, why do you think that is? She said, I think that people were just feeling so hopeless, so distraught. They just needed to do something to give back. They needed to do something to instill hope in them and hope in others. And so people went out underneath the bridges and they passed out gourmet meals to the homeless. And every time I talk to people who do that, they say, boy, that, that ministered to me a lot more than it ministered to those people. And probably the people under the bridge are thinking the same thing. Be hope. Think of a church, Willow Creek Community Church, where our wonderful Darren Calhoun is yielding from. And uh, maybe yielding was a bad word. <laughs> and, and, and this church... Uh, did a really interesting thing over the last couple of years. They've slowly increased, but finally this last year they decided that they were going to pack a care package for every uh, uh, incarcerated person in the state of Illinois, which was 70,000, which is sad. It's a whole other epidemic in conversation itself. We have more people incarcerated in America than anywhere else in the world. Free country and all. <laughs> And they packed these care packages with books about second chances, a devotional book, uh, a pamphlet about ministries that they have available to them after they get out of jail, uh, some powder donuts, and some ho-hos. And, and then, obviously, work is also being done to bring some legislation reform, because those things are just a band-aid. But I think that's pretty beautiful, because also, here's one thing, one thing I think is really neat what they did. It wasn't like, hey, come together on a Saturday and we're going to put together these care packages. No, that's not what they did. They said, we're going to stop in the middle of our worship service and everybody in this auditorium is going to put these care packages together right now. And they distributed them throughout the auditorium. 70,000 care packages to every incarcerated individual in the state of Illinois. Being hope. How about this one? I think it's really interesting. In Colorado Springs, New Life Church decided they were going to try to rally together all of the, these churches uh, in the state of Colorado to empty the foster system. And in 2010, every child but 200 of them were adopted. Being hope, being pro-life. How about, you're like, that's really lofty. I don't think I could do all that. You're really, I mean, you're setting the bar pretty stinking high here, pal. Uh, how about just these simple things? How about just... Uh, being present and praying with those who are in pain. How about the guy on the side of the road I saw yesterday with his jumper cables up just holding like this and cars passing by, me being one of them and thinking, I hope someone stops. How about uh, marching with those who are forgotten and silenced and helping them have a voice? How about partnering with legislators to see change the Community Renewal Society, the work that's being done here in, in, in our very own city with our city officials to bring legislation and change internally and being a voice and an advocate. I think of uh, 
a woman in my last church where I pastored in Kentucky. She was 35, and her and her husband tried since they were in their mid-20s to have a child, and they finally had their first daughter who was two years old when her husband got diagnosed with cancer. And in less than a year, it took his life. I remember going. And every week on Tuesday morning, 11 o'clock, and sitting with her in her home when her daughter laid down for a nap, and I'd just sit with her as she cried. And I'd hold her. And I didn't have anything to say. She didn't want me to say anything. She just needed to know there was somebody still there. She just needed to feel the touch of someone. She needed someone to see her cry in her tears. And after a few months, the crying stopped. And we began to talk about what it looked like to move forward. And then a few months later, she busted the scrapbooks and we looked through pictures together. Just being hope. being present being Christ to people who need it the world is full of fear church hell I'm full of fear fear asking for God to fill me with faith and when I gather with folks like you the fear seems to just diminish for a moment and I'm filled with faith because I see hope in you I see hope when we rally together. We are, we are hopeful because we embody hope. And in, verse chap- in, in chapter 9, sorry, chapter 40, verse 9, he says this, he says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald good tidings, lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Do not fear, urban village. Say to the cities of Chicago, of New York, to the country of America and to the world globally, here is your God. I embody hope. When you walk into the room, people should say, that's God. That's so heretical. (laughs) I don't literally mean your God. You embody him. Jesus left, he said, so that he could send his Holy Spirit, so that he could be inside of all of us, because Jesus was limited by geographical body structures. But instead, he said, I'm going to put myself in all of you, so you can do even greater things than me, which is that there be little Jesuses all around the world who could be God, who could say, here is your God. Here is hope. Here is the new way. Here is a better way. Here is someone who's going to sit with you, who's going to fight with you, who's going to live with you, who is going to embody hope. When I read these last few passages, I can't stop but but continue to think, how can we be hope? How can we declare to people, here is your God, I am with you. We mustn't just post generic cliches of God is on the throne without then first asking what is required of me. You see, yes, God is on the throne, but let us not forget that faith without works is dead, church. God is on the throne, but let us not forget that we're all called to love God, to do mercy and justice. 
God is on the throne, but let us not forget that we are called to do even greater things in Christ. God is on the throne, but let us not forget that the Spirit is in our hearts. God is on the throne, but let us not grow weary of declaring with the saints, let my people go. God is on the throne, but let us stand on the wings of those who have gone before us and be lifting up every valley and every mountain and hill and wall, tearing them low to level the ground and to make the rough edges plain. God is on the throne, but let us not forget that we are called to go into all the world, to preach the good news, to set the captive free, to bring sight to the blind, to feed the hungry, to fight for the marginalized, and to stand in solidarity with the minimalized. God is on the throne, but we are God's army of peacemakers. We are God's hands, we are God's feet, we are God's eyes, and we are God's heart. You want hope this morning? Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you are my hope. That was pathetic. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and say, you are my hope. God is on the throne. You want hope? Be hope, church. God has given us all that we need to bring hope into this world. God is on the throne, but we are on the earth. And may we all be people who bring a glimpse of of the hope found in the heavenly community down to earth, church. Let us not just be comforted, but let us comfort. Let us not just be hopeful, but let us be hope. Let us not just declare God is on the throne, but let our lives declare, here is your God. Here is hope. Here is comfort. Here is love. 